Hello, I'm Jane Daly and this is my podcast for people who know. As an independent thought leader, coach and work-life advocate, I'm curious about people who are accelerating their work and life. And whilst finding their own balance, they've also found time to inspire others to do the same. My interest in Clive Shepherd started many years ago when I was inspired by Clive's work and brought him in to Marks and Spencer, where I was global head of learning and development, to work with me and the team to accelerate what we were doing at MS. Clive, I'm absolutely delighted to welcome you into the Work Life Time Machine today. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm delighted to be here too. It sounds like it's going to be an exciting uh, hour or so. Absolutely. We're going to have some fun, definitely, Clive. Um, and it's definitely something you and I haven't done before. We've done many things, but we have never been in a time machine together before. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I don't, I, I hope, is, it, is it possible to be socially distanced in a time machine? We will absolutely make sure that we're legal, compliant and socially distanced. I promise you, Clive. <laughs> <laughs> now, just before we get into the time machine and we step in there, Clive, tell us a bit about what you're up to at the moment. Well, I'm up to a lot, but in the learning and development context, I'm actually retired, and uh, which is, I, I thought would, would never be possible and would never happen after decades and decades, as we'll explore shortly. But uh, yes, I've, I've retired from professional work in the learning and development space and uh, immersing myself in all of those projects which were on the back burner for, oh, for forever. So exciting, Clive, and I can't wait to step in and talk to you um, about all of those things. And in particular, we're really going to draw out the future of learning technologies, um, which uh, you're absolute master in. So I can't wait to get in and, and see what's going on. So are you ready to step in? I am. Let's go. <laughs> Fabulous. So, Clive, how does it feel for you? What, you know, what are you noticing in this time machine? Well, it's... <laughs> It's, a, it, it's, it's nothing like the TARDIS. And uh, in fact, I'm having to do a lot of imagination. One of the interesting things, uh, uh, Jane, about me is that I, I, I do live fairly much in the present and in the future. I'm not somebody who spends a great deal of time reminiscing or regretting things or going back over things. So it's quite interesting for me to be forced occasionally to reflect and so uh, I suppose that it, it, it's probably good for me because we need to learn from our own histories. I totally agree. Getting you out of your comfort zone. I've got the power here, Clive. This is a, a huge responsibility I have on my shoulders. So uh, well, let me set this clock and let, let's go back to uh, 1983. And I'm just going to set the scene before we bring you into the picture. Really interesting, interesting year, 37 years ago. Um, Microsoft launched Word, the application that is still obviously uh, part of our work lives and, and, and general life today, isn't it? And it's everywhere that you see Word. I know there was a prediction it would be gone by now, but it is absolutely still firmly here. The first mobile phones were introduced to the public by Motorola. Um, wow. And uh, seatbelts became um, mandatory in the United Kingdom. And the game Mario Bros, which again is still going today, was launched as an arcade game. So not in homes, but it was launched as an arcade game. In terms of uh, music, there was a couple of songs that were hitting the moment that may take you back a little bit. Sweet Dreams by the Eurythmics and Every Breath You Take by The Police. 
amongst many others. But one of the um, interesting things that was going on as well was it was the, the year of the Brinks Matt robbery, which again came into the news earlier this year. That has um, nothing to do with me. <laughs> Well, let's hope not, Clive. Maybe, you know, you could have retired because the amount of uh, gold bars that were taken were valued at 28.5 million. And that was then. So imagine what they're worth 37 years ago. But what was going on for you at that time? Well, it was a very interesting year um, for several reasons. First of all, uh, uh, we moved home that year with uh, my, my wife and two children. And uh, so that was that's, that sort of sticks in my memory. As a sort of uh, Brighton resident and Brighton and Hove Albion fan, uh, it's a famous year because that's the year we were in the FA Cup final. So we, um, we, we went to that and that was great fun. So there was a lot of excitement around that. But from a career perspective, it was very important because um, I had been working for about uh, 10 or 11 years at American Express, which is what brought me to Brighton in the first place. And their sort of European headquarters was and still is there. In, in my career at American Express, I had started doing what was essentially a sort of management accounting type job and uh, was offered the chance to work in doing a training job, looking after hundreds of people who did financial jobs. So I, I was a financial trainer. And at that point in time, my career flipped completely out of the sort of uh, sort of technical accounting world into HR, I suppose we'd call it now, although we didn't call it that then, personnel, as it was then. And I, I sort of gradually broadened out from that for, to generalist training and then management training and then all the different types of training. i had been uh, doing one sort of training job or another uh, for quite a few years by 1983. But one of the things which was really unusual and exciting at the time was that we were experimenting a lot with media and technology. And it helped being an American company because I had a lot of American contacts. I knew a lot of the uh, people working in uh, technology and training in America. The, the sort of head of um, HR, there was an American chat there. Before he left uh, and went back to the US, he said, Clive, I want you to set up a video studio to, you know, to make um, videos for the company. So, I said, well, I know nothing about it, but I'm, I'm fascinated to do that. And I hired, hired a guy as a studio manager, and we spent several years building up the studio. But he was, a, uh, he was into computers, and he uh, persuaded me to get an Apple II computer, which was the original sort of commercial Apple machine. And I bought one and had one at home. And I really got into that and programming it and all these sorts of things. And I was actually doing things like um, programming authoring tools, would you believe, um, while I was still at American Express. We had an open learning center and uh, we made little sort of, um, you know, computer-based training programs. And it became, and, and of course, videos, and we became um, quite well known uh, for doing that. And one of the ways that we spread out from that was that there was a local video company who did the videos which we were not good enough to do so when we had something really posh to do we would uh, work with a local video company and of course I got to know those people very well and they said to me would I like to come out and join them in their company which was uh, called VPS 
they, uh, and you, you know, we could do interactive stuff because interactive video, as we called it then, was becoming quite, um, quite a thing. And video displays had just emerged. And um, I'd been experimenting with that at American Express and we'd had some success with it. So I don't know whether it was a moment of complete madness because I had a really good job at American Express and I was paid well and I was traveling all over the world. You know, it was about as secure as any job could possibly be. So, um, but I was still quite young. So, I, you know, it seemed like a great opportunity. So I did join these guys. So that's when I essentially uh, went from being a sort of general L&D person with a big, big technical interest into being a full-time um, sort of interactive technology uh, person, working at a company called, um, well, the bit that I created was called VPS Interactive. It's fascinating, Clive, isn't it, to just think about all of those connections and those sort of series of events. You know, really, I suppose, listening to some of those signals that, that took you into a world that you just weren't expecting. Looking back now, what would you... You know, what advice would you give um, to people who are, you know, around that time, maybe not even looking for anything else, but what advice would you give your, the younger Clive, less experienced? Well, I think the, the, the trouble is that even though you're aware of it and you try to avoid it happening, as you, the older you get, the more risk averse you do tend to become. You want to sort of hang on to what you've got um, a bit more than you, perhaps you do when you're younger. So it's very, it'd be very easy for me to say, why did you do such a mad thing? You know, yeah, I, could, I could have stayed there. Uh, it did work out, of course, but it, could, it may not have done. And when you join a small company, you know, the risks are, are very great. But at, at that age, and I think that this is why I would say to people that, that this was a, 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 was a good decision to make, is that you can re keep reinventing yourself very quickly and very easily when you're 30, 32, that sort of age. And it's not quite so easy, you know, to walk into a, any old job when you're 55 or 65 or 75 as it is when you're 25 or 35. So it's a fantastic opportunity to try things. And I think that um, the way it worked in that I did 10 years working for a big corporate and then went into a smaller business was, uh, which mirrors your own career in many ways, Jane, I think actually was a good decision too, because if I'd gone straight into a small business, you have no real experience of the world to bring to your clients. But um, every time I was working with clients in my new company, I had been on their side of the table and I understood what it was like to buy the services that we were selling. So I felt that, and I knew what corporate life was like. I knew what was possible, what was not possible and uh, how things worked. So there is a good argument, I think, for getting corporate experience early on and learning at their expense, you know, in a, also giving them good value for their money, but learning at their expense. But if you feel that, you know, there are opportunities which would enable you to really uh, do something more exciting to express yourself more, and if you like, have an even more adventurous career, then that's a good time to do it when you're sort of around that age, 30, 35, because you're still not too late if it really doesn't work out to find your way back into a, a secure job again. 
but uh, so I, I think um, that would be the advice I'd give is, is, you know, do benefit from, you know, learn from your corporate experience, try and get as many experiences as you can. But if a chocolate opportunities come, they sort of fell, sort of fell on my plate, but, you know, if you have to go looking for it, then fine. Then, you know, do take advantage of those opportunities because, um, it, you know, it, it could be that you find yourself getting much closer to the sort of work that you always have the potential to do. Absolutely, Clive. You know, I was reflecting on what you were saying about that, that experience. And I think it is very difficult to be particularly in the learning space. In fact, the digital learning space, when you maybe haven't understood or, or been responsible for trying to solve some of those business challenges, because they're actually much wider than L&D, they're beyond L&D. And it's very difficult to try and explain that to somebody when they have a particular field of view, when they haven't been in there to, to, to feel some of that. So I definitely relate to what you were saying there. And uh, really, really good advice to, you know, I suppose, have your eyes open, be curious. I, I wouldn't, I know you were saying it isn't a risk, but actually, Clive, those, whatever would have happened, those experiences are really important in shaping what works for you personally and what doesn't work and taking those opportunities for what they are, real opportunities to learn, quite frankly. So, Clive, let's get back in this time machine, go to the present day, because, you know, in that 37 year period, I know that you mentioned that you um, are smiling as you tell me that you've, you've, you've decided to retire. But if, there's been an awful lot happened in that in that period so let's go back to 2020 and you know tell me what you're ob observing in particular about learning technologies and 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 you know what, what's going on for you what are you observing yeah well of course it, it, the, it's it's some irony in the fact that just as i decided to retire a bit earlier this year we then went into the whole coronavirus thing which some people would say was the biggest opportunity for learning technologies that's ever been invented um, because you know all those schools universities and training departments all having to work remotely you, you could say it's a fantastic opportunity and in and i do believe it has been in a way but of course how people what people do to respond to those situations isn't necessarily what people would have predicted or or even expect or wanted to happen so people have um, absolutely no doubt realized that a huge number of learning activities can be accomplished remotely. And many of them can, many of them can be done in very, very simple ways, like the sort of, sort of things we're doing today, which can easily be done remotely or using obviously sort of virtual classroom type ideas where you're using technologies like Zoom or whatever it is you have in your organization to run the equivalent of classes or coaching groups or um, whatever, the, whatever the activity is that you want to just sort of carry on what you were doing before, but carry it on in a remote way. And, you know, to be honest, uh, the only thing that was stopping that happening, I think in many cases, for people who were classroom orientated or face-to-face -face orientated, was just nerves about the the technicalities involved and how tricky it would be. But, you know, hundreds of thousands of L&D people and teachers and trainers and lecturers over this year have got over that nervousness because they've had to, you know, they've been forced through that process. 
and uh, are now becoming quite savvy on it. Um, I, I, was, I was listening to uh, a uh, Zoom sort of, I think it probably would be regarded as a sort of like inter, a sort of a, a facilitated meeting that my wife was taking part in yesterday. And uh, she's involved in various voluntary groups in Brighton. And, it, and I, was, uh, I was working in a different part of the office. And what I was hearing going on was essentially a fully facilitated meeting with, it was taking place in Zoom, but with, you know, an app on, everyone had an app open on their phones, but they were also able to do surveys and all this sort of stuff. So you actually had the sort of uh, virtual learning experience that, that, you know, I used to teach people how to do these things, but that people have sort of figured out now, having done scores of these um, events over this year. And uh, of course, it, it does a, a good job. What, what we've seen this year, of course, is primarily live events going virtual. Um, because that, they're really quick to set up, really quick to do. What, uh, of course, takes a lot longer is creating content. And live events are okay up to a point, but you know, it's not a great environment for really reflecting on and pondering on uh, new ideas and concepts and, and it's not a great environment for building skills and all this sort of stuff. So my uh, sort of perspective on learning and development over the last 20 years has been very, very much focused on how you choose to use the right tools at the right time. And, you know, an overemphasis on live, you know, communication is, um, you know, is as bad a sin as an overemphasis on self-study. You know, you don't want to learn anything entirely on your own in an isolated environment just looking at content. Well, not many people do. And not many people are going to get the, the best experience all live either. In, in, uh, so hopefully um, the same sort of um, conclusions people will be reaching for themselves and they'll be thinking, well, we need we need we need a mixture. We, we need a blend uh, uh, of, of different types of things. And of course, there is another realization that's happened this year, which is not just in terms of learning environment, but in all our lives, is how important face-to-face -face communication is to us as human beings, and always has been, of course. But now we've experienced, you know, many of us, if not all of us, have experienced periods without the same degree of face-to-face -face contact that we've been used to having for all our lives. And we're yearning for more of that. Everybody is, you know, focused in on Christmas and how they can get as many people in the same room as possible uh, without breaking the rules. And so I do think that there's a, another important lesson in 2020, which is that the blend, if you like, or the mix of ways in which we learn is the same as the mix of ways we do other things in life, is it does need, you know, physical contact with other human beings. So working from home is all right up to a point, but you still do want to go in and see people sometimes. You know, when you're younger in particular, I think, in your 20s and 30s, and you want to do that more than you do perhaps later on. You know, the, the, the need for mixing with other people is, is very, very great. And with children, perhaps even more than that. So I think that 
for me, it's been, as I say, I'm rather ironic that this huge surge of interest in technology has come just as I retire, uh, and that it's taken this to make it happen, which is, which is a bit of a shame. So however many blog posts I might have written over the years, it wasn't as effective as a, as a virus in, uh, in stimulating that. But I think it's also um, made people very aware of the importance of the mixture of the blend and that um, you know, we're not going to do the right thing by people by taking everything online. I think it's interesting, Clive, you were talking about this forced nature and I, I've... Um been as you can imagine collecting some insight and researching into you know that kind of stuff relating it to culture and I think that we should forget that you know if we really want to take something serious then actually there's some positive things about having some force behind something in order for it to happen and I've had lots of boardroom virtual boardroom conversations with organizations about how they can maximize that and get into this idea of digital first working and learning which you know that they're different things which I have to remind people daily but it can be done but it still needs a level of thinking a level of thought and bringing it back to futuristic nature Mm. of well look yes we have these constraints but how do we make this uh, opportunity as best we can and you're absolutely right in you know thinking about the, the blend and even if you can't get that fully face-to-face what can we do around it you know I've, I've um, been surprised as to how many people furloughed or even made redundant apprentices for an example and mm. you were like this is this is you know what's going on here And a lot of it was that, oh, well, what is the point? They're not going to get the experiences. And until you try and explain to them that, look, just them observing a meeting like your wife was having, um, coming in and just um, giving their opinion on something and just interacting and building relationships with people Mm. um, is enough often for people. Because, you know, imagine starting work this year. But, of course, most people's head goes to that, well, this is what, you know, we need to do it with, with in this way. And if I can't fulfill that, then I won't do it. And I think that was maybe what was stopping us previously mm. is if I don't have the world-class systems and I don't have, I can't bring Clive Shepherd in or the, the, the ultimate expert, we can't do it. But as you're saying, Clive, that actually there's so much we can do yeah. if we just work together, collaborate, share, set our mind to it. And really think about uh, what we can do. I've seen the most amazing things. I mean, what's your view on the where learning technologies are today? Are they, you know, in order for where we, you know, when you think about we're in 2020, we're in a digital first workplace, are learning technologies ready for that, Clive? Or is there more work to do? Well, t- technology is usually miles ahead of what's, of what's actually happening. And there's not every technology you could want is is there to do massive more than we're doing now i think that in a way learning technologies is a rather unfortunate sort of way of bundling up things which are so different from each other that um they almost can't be classified together the only thing that's in common when we talk about virtual learning or online learning or learning technologies or e-learning is that 
the experience of teaching or learning is mediated by technology. But in a way, that's, you know, that mediation is not a huge determinant of the outcome. So, so in, in, in many cases, the experience you get from the virtual lecture is very similar to the experience you get from the, being in the, in the same room, for example. Um, it's not exactly the same, but by and large, the, the mediation through a screen doesn't make a great deal of difference to the, the way the content's presented or the, or the decision to, to present content in the first place. So but underneath that heading of learning technologies, there are a lot of things, some of which have rather sort of muddied the waters. So I think if we look at, first of all, the really simple things that everyone's rushed to and which have been extremely successful, there is what we're doing now, live video conferencing. There is video, making videos and using that as a way of teaching, which YouTube has told us is absolutely the preferred form of content for almost everybody in the world. You know, it's absolutely fabulously effective at, you know, communicating things in a very human way and in a very practical way and so on. And for people who, who find it hard to immerse themselves in words, you know, video hits you hits you really well and of course you know the heart that if i compare the difference now with video to what it was like when i first joined that video company when i was back in 1983 you know we used to charge as a base rate a thousand pounds a minute for making a video so if it was a 15 minute video it would cost fifteen thousand quid that was in 1983 so you know you can see how much simpler the process of making video has become um, that it can be so much cheaper obviously you could still spend a thousand pounds or much more but you, you, you get the point so because of on the internet because of mobile phones and things like this people know how to take photographs know how to make videos and know how to record audio so they can make podcasts like this obviously there's top professional stuff and there's sort of make do stuff but make do stuff is often okay. And if you do need help, as you have today with Steve and um, you know, who are helping to edit and you know, get the college just right. Yeah, when you want to do something that's at the professional end, yeah, you still do need labor that is relatively expensive, but it's nothing like what it would have cost you in, in, in years gone by. So there's all these things which have emerged, emerged, which are really simple, just simple web pages with blog posts or simple articles in or screencasts which show people how to do, you know, to, to do things on computers and videos, simple videos, podcasts and live, uh, you know, uh, video conferencing. All of those things, I think people now, almost anybody in the educational training world, um, by the end of this year would feel comfortable with most if not all of those things and that has um, taken down what was always been the biggest barrier which is fear that you know if learning becomes technological that i'm not the person to do it i'm going to i'm not going to be able to cope with it it's all too complicated but now your grandparents are quite happily doing it 
you know, there's no excuse anymore. Your, your five-year-old, you didn't question the fact that they could do it. But, you know, it really is regarded as a core skill. But then you've got another whole side to learning technologies. And that is, you know, the making of more sophisticated content. Interactive content, intelligent content, 3D content, um, augmented reality content. And I think that those people who work in that business, which is the professional sort of e-learning business, I'd be very surprised if they'd seen a huge upturn of work this year, although they probably would have predicted they'd have got it. I would be surprised if, they, if that's happened because that isn't where, you know, everything had to happen too fast for that. You couldn't, you, you know, you couldn't start contracting people to go away and make content for you, which would be ready next March, you know. You needed to get something up and running straight away. But that whole area of learning technologies, the really sophisticated end of it, where you do often need external help, or at least you need people internally who you know, devote most of their time to it, is much more problematic. And one of the, one of the problems is that people in L&D you know, I'm generalizing because there are lots of exceptions, of course. A lot of people in, in LD who don't know how that stuff's made, so they feel vulnerable and they don't really want to get involved in it and they'd rather it didn't happen. And they're worried that if it does happen, that there'll be no role for them because people will just learn French on a computer. You know, they won't need a French teacher and all that sort of stuff. Or maths and other things and there are certain certain programming there are lots of skills which you could learn that way very very effectively that doesn't mean you don't need a coach or someone to help you out but and of course those are things that could radically alter the nature of education and training because they could make it fundamentally more effective and fundamentally more efficient but what we've seen which isn't going to be popular with my friends in the e-learning world, is what we haven't seen is that potential exploited in a corporate context in that whole 37 years. We've seen the, you know, the same simplistic models of, uh, you know, which are not much more than animated slideshows, presented gorgeously with wonderful graphics. Um, but with really just not making the, take, taking advantage of the fact that the computer has got all this processing power and you know, all you're asking it to do is turn the page is an insult to a computer. Because <laughs> a computer, much more effectively than a human being can build a profile of a learner, can adapt what they teach to the learner, to every individual learner, and and monitor their progress and support that learner, you know, into the future with no scalability issues. In other words, it doesn't matter if it's two people or two billion people or thinking intergalactically, two trillion people. It wouldn't actually, right, you need a slightly bigger data center, but, but, you know, as far as computers are concerned, they still wouldn't be working as hard as they would to play, you know, a computer game. Uh, so somehow or other, we've missed out on a huge trick. And I think 
when we come to look at the future, I'll try and explain what, how I think that might, how I think that might change. But I do think that one of the problems with the, the you know, the learning technology content has been that while we've made stuff that is efficient in the sense that it gets lots of people through their compliance training and all this sort of stuff and keeps records on a big central database and all this sort of stuff is typically so dull that it has, you know, given itself a terrible reputation amongst learners and amongst the other people in L&D. And that's because to do anything better is actually quite difficult. Mm. And so I think you really have to separate out the sort of high-tech end of, le of learning technologies from the sort of everyday. But the everyday is a revolution taking place. And, it, and, it, and it, to be honest, it was taking place before this year, not so much on live stuff like Zoom, but on the use of video, for example. Um, you know, video has become, uh, through YouTube and similar things, has already before this year become the preferred medium of choice for learning for everybody in the world, really, who's got access to the internet. You're um, this you're year, we've you're added live stuff. You're, you're absolutely right, Clive, and there's, there's no doubt. I mean, we're seeing the way that, you know, mobile phones are becoming much more sophisticated and, and every advert shows you how the video can bend, um, you know, do backflips and all sorts of things on yeah. its own. But, you know, that that is, as you say, what's drawing people um, in. And, and, you know, it's incredible what... Um, you know, two teenagers making in, in a garage, you know, it, it really is, you know, I, I'm constantly amazed by, um, you know, what, 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 what I do see that is, as you say, DIY, having a go, um, having some fun with it, with it really, but I, I think it's really good to give the advice to separate those two areas, and, and, um, I think we should go and have a look at the future because I'd love to hear your perspective on this, because I, I do think we are at a, uh, a pivot point and a crossroads and um, it's been really interesting to observe what the response has been as part of this false nature in 2020 but it, let's go and get this time machine off to 2030 so, so let's have a go so we're in 2030 Clive and what's predicted um, if you listen to McKinsey's PwC Deloitte's and all of those clever people that are churning all sorts of data and insights um, that's coming out and they pretty much say the same thing which is that there'll be less people in full-time employment mm. um, people will have um, a mixture of portfolio careers um, that um, you know work and life is completely intertwined um, yes. it's not you know it's not a, a work between nine and five and I don't work weekends, it's, it's, it's very different to that. And often people are working for different organisations and actually capabilities are much more important than job descriptions or job profiles. So in that context, Clive, what do you foresee? Well, the, <laughs> I think that post-pandemics and on for the next 10 years, um, some aspects of education and training will revert to type schools and in particular and uh, to a lesser degree universities. But I think we have to leave them to one side because there's a good reason why kids go to schools, which is, uh, and it isn't largely about learning content about, um, it's because it's a, if they didn't, then parents wouldn't be able to work 
and you know the, the economy would collapse from that point of view. And of course, the socialization process, uh, which were of you know building you know interpersonal skills, empathy, and these sort of things, absolutely depends on massive amounts of face-to-face contact. In fact, you could say that they don't kids don't haven't had enough face-to-face contact because they've had too much time on screens. Um, so there's a good reason why a lot of that will revert to normal, although many, many children will supplement that with uh, things that they learn, you know, in other ways uh, outside school, whether that's facilitated by the school or not. Universities is, you know, there's, there's, there's a sort of halfway house argument for that, and we don't want to get too immersed in that. But when we, come, when we talk about the world of work, you're absolutely right that people will have multiple, uh, may well have uh, multiple assignments for contracts and different types of jobs. They'll be moving more quickly. And they certainly won't have time to do, uh, or the willingness to do lengthy, in many cases, classroom courses. And organizations, I think, after having returned from the pandemic, will now seriously question whether they were the right thing anyway, in many cases. Now, that's not saying that face-to-face contact for people learning their jobs isn't really, really useful, and that particularly for um, manual skills and other things where, you know, apprenticeship with somebody or coach, apprenticeship relationships or coaching relationships really, really can benefit from, um, you know, face-to-face support and, the, and from having a sort of cohort of colleagues that you can relate to, not just online, but face-to-face. But for the majority of people who absolutely got used to working with screens, um, they will expect much of what they learn to be accomplished online, either live or um, through content, a lot of it simple textual material or videos um, in, in many cases, because they're simple to produce and um, they're not simple from a learning perspective, they're simple from a technical perspective to produce. Um, so. Yeah, I think I think there's no turning back. So it, it, this is this is a bit like the 1983 was for me. This is a, absolutely a, a pivotal year, and I, and I think that quite likely in a few years to come, we won't actually talk about learning technologies when we're talking about the things we've just been saying. Things simple things like you know videos and podcasts and quizzes and you know live online sessions. We will just regard that as just um, completely transparent. It'll be just just normal. We won't think of that as learning technology. And uh, that's a good thing because it, it never was the most important the most important issue. So that it, that's definitely happening. Now, when you talk about the more complicated stuff, you can't help but say that two things that sort of occur to me. One is that, L&D does seem to move much more slowly than any other business process I can, I, I can consider. You know, when we consider how people like marketing over the years have transformed themselves as a whole profession, we haven't seen that same rate of change in L&D. Um, so things will, 10 years is actually not very long in, in L&D terms. It's not. <laughs> things won't necessarily have changed that much. The other thing is that Predicting the future is hazardous uh, uh, at, uh, at best and, and impossible probably in practical terms because the number of variables are just too gigantic. And, you, you know, 
there's, there's so many classic examples historically of people trying to predict the future. People who say, well, one, you know, in, in the future, there will be one telephone in each city, you know, and things like that. You know, but people who so dramatically underestimated the potential of a medium, it, it, it doesn't make sense. You know, that every company might have one computer. It's, it's, it's sort of ridiculous. When things happen, they really, really do happen quickly, as mobile phones shows and the internet shows it. And everything can change, you know, sort of tips over, tips over the cliff and everything changes all at once. We haven't seen that in L&D, but we might be seeing that because of what's happened this year. So we've talked about the fact that I think that the sort of simpler forms of media will just be completely taken for granted and a hugely increased proportion of your learning will be done on a computer. But without thinking of it as learning technologies. It's just normal, normal work. Now, when you're talking about the clever stuff, you know, the sort of intelligent tutoring computing, the things which give you an adaptive experience, which is completely for you and accelerates the way that you learn quite technical things. What undoubtedly we've already seen and will see is that when those skills or domains knowledge domains are widespread in other words tens of millions or hundreds of millions or even billions of people need to learn them like maths like speaking french or whatever it might be the commercial um, argument for investing large sums of money in building tools that teach you those things in really, really sophisticated ways are entirely justifiable. So tools like, you know, which we've had for a long time now, like Duolingo for learning languages and things, are quite actually quite sophisticated tools. They could be more sophisticated, but and they are getting more sophisticated, but they are actually not very easy to produce. And they're quite big scale efforts. Now, there's no way that employers are going to be able to they won't have the time and they won't have the money or the expertise to make programs like that that teach the sort of specific knowledge you need to do a particular job in an organization unless there are millions of people doing it you could say management would be an example is that you know it's one of those horizontal strands which so there are millions of managers um, um, but technical skills, I'm not optimistic about things like virtual reality, augmented reality, um, artificial intelligence and all these things for technical skills, you know, the normal technical skills, because I just don't think there'll ever be the financial clout to justify the effort. And it's not just the technical effort, it is the enormous amount of analysis that has to be done of the subject to prepare to you've got to understand the subject so well that almost better than anyone has done in history in order to work out how any type of person could learn it and in what order and what are the best techniques it, it requires really good analysis skills and really good data analysis skills and um, I'm not optimistic about those things happening only the, the last 20 years, all of, a lot of those things have been possible anyway. I mean, 
we could have done, you know, we had artificial intelligence things going in the 1980s. In fact, in, within three years of me joining that company in 1983, we were doing an artificial intelligence project um, to teach people recruitment and selection. And it was actually a fantastic tool. Um, but, you know, it cost a lot of money to make that, the program we made. And um, it was, I'd never have lived long enough to, you know, it was so stressful, the whole process that <laughs> I'm not sure I'd have lived to the, at the age I'm now if, if, if I'd had to do that all the time. Those things are quite unusual to, um, so I do hope that we're going to begin to see some intelligent content which really does um, treat us as an individual, gives us a wonderful human experience, even though we're dealing with a computer program. I, I, uh, and that, that requires great writing, great subject matter expertise, great learning expertise, and some technical expertise as well. Um, but I'm not that optimistic because I think the world of work is far too quick changing and pragmatic. And uh, what we will see is our children will see those things. Uh, they're already seeing them. So that, that'll, be, that'll be really exciting. But I think it's a massive distraction. Most of the stuff that gets taught at, um, you, you know, that gets presented at learning technology conferences about um, future technologies is they're massively overhyped, not because they don't have potential, but because unless you're, you know, you've got the defense budget of the American army or something like that, or, you know, you, you don't have the capability to take advantage of them. No, I think it's really useful, Clive, the way that you've you've separated those those two. And I think that I think that will really help people because it is overwhelming. You know, it is it, it, most people from the evidence that, that that I've been lucky enough to swim in um, is that they have around 12 different sort of techie tools as part of their ecosystem. That's on average. Now, some yeah. people have hundreds, some people have less. But on average, that's still 12 things that you're trying to balance and help people with um and I, I, what i really liked what you were talking about there is is the idea of um you know personalization and this adaptive experience which um desperately needs to be thought about because um in the 1980s sheep dipping was absolutely the norm in organizations and um i know when i think about millennials gen z whatever we want to term those generations as is is it's just not going to hack it for people particularly as you know if you're sort of working for three or four you know organizations doing different projects because you're an expert in a particular field and that becomes more normal why would you have these sort of the ways that we're, we're doing stuff now so a lot of those things really need to flip um, and you know and actually we need to start thinking about the investments we're making and you know what's worth it what what, what isn't what people can do themselves as to what role learning and development play I love this thing about you were talking about this sort of fear of um, we feel that you know, often, and I, I do believe it's been an undercurrent in L&D, is that we feel that if we hand something over, that we're not going to be valuable anymore and not be valued. Mm. And actually, um, I don't see it like that, that at all, because I know when I have handed stuff over, I've become even more valuable because I'm able to bring some oversight, some objectivity, um, some expertise to something. When I let something become organic and I mm. observe it, I can go in there and say, 
wow, that, that bit worked really well, but now there's some friction here. This is where I can now go and work with you guys and add some value. And I think it would give people time to do that rather than uh, some of the sort of places we end up being. But Clive, I'm going to be really brave now and I'm going to give you the time machine, mm. my valuable time machine over to you. Um, so where, where, where are you going to take us and why? <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose um, if we do go far enough ahead, more than 10 years ahead, to another, let's say to 2050, then I do think we will have um, generated tools which make it more easy um, to develop really adapt adaptive learning experiences. I, th I think by that stage, we we'll have got that even for, for smaller areas of, um, uh, you know, sort of more niche knowledge and skills and what have you. And that um, we, we probably are going to be uh, experiencing some of the science fiction aspects of learning technologies. And, and that'll be a great thing, but it, it will require much, much better tools than we have at the moment. Although, you know, we have good, we have adaptive platforms beginning to emerge, which is good, but it's what, it, it, it's one thing having the platform, it's another having the vision to be able to see how, you know, to create an architecture, which, supports that platform and I don't, um, I don't think we have that yet whereas I think we, we will have reached that stage by 2050 and we can expect to be learning things much more quickly and much more um, in a much more condensed way much more um, personalized to our own needs you know and, and more sophisticated than just listening through whole great long videos you know we would just get the get, get the stuff we need to get. But I do believe that there's humans, yeah, which is, I think is coming from where you, what you were saying just now. You don't uh, take away your value, I think, as a, as a teacher or a trainer or whatever, a learning and development specialist, by packaging up content and keep making it available for free. What you do is give yourself the opportunity to do the stuff that humans that computers really find hard to do and may, may be able to do by 2050, but it'll never be the same. It'll never be, you know, if people will still want to have that personal experience. And I think it, it is that ability to empathize with people, to, uh, at, with learners, to be able to give them encouragement, to be able to give them good pointers, to be able to help them to sort through problems that they're having and, crises of confidence and so that you know the age of the really great facilitator and coach is you know, it, it, it is is arising so people who are great with people which may well have been why they became a learning and development person in the first place i think will be able to do nothing but the stuff they really enjoy not having to present the same course to 30 different groups in one month you know, like a rock band going on tour um, and the huge amount of exhaustion that comes from that. Because they were, you know, all of the, um, all of the repetitive stuff will be done automatically. And I think it frees us up to do, and this is true, this is going to be true, of lots of jobs, not just L&D, but it's the really human things which computers, we, we, won't, we won't want computers to do them. It's not that they couldn't have a go at them. We won't want them to do it. 
because as humans, we want to relate to other humans. And uh, learning technologies, in some ways, can enable learning to be a more human experience because when you're sheep dipping in a classroom, that's not a human experience. You might be in the same room as other humans. There's nothing about that that validates you as a human being. But if you're getting a truly personalized um, experience coupled with great either online or face-to-face -face coaching and facilitation, it'll be, you'll have a massively more satisfying experience than you do now. And people will pay lots of money for the human element. Lots of money. Um, in the same way that people pay for a personal trainer in the gym. You know, not everybody does, obviously, because not everyone can afford it. But people pay for it because it dramatically enhances their experience of, you know, of the hour they're putting in. And uh, so although some people aren't going to be good at that empathetic, you know, behavior, interpersonal skills, some people are. And if you're that type of person, if you are a people person, then stick around in L&D because learning technologies is going to make your life better, not worse. I totally agree with you, Clive. And I'm, I'm, I'm definitely up for coming in, in, in this time machine and seeing this going on. I, I love that idea that, you know, we need to be more people focused, more human and really understand that behavioral science and neuroscience and all the incredible things that are growing as we're learning about people and, and, and how to help people. And, you know, all those things that we desperately want to do. And if you don't like that stuff, now's your time to jump ship um, from L&D. But make friends with technology because then technology can do the stuff that we don't need to do, that people can do yeah. themselves, mm. as an example. And when they get stuck and when they need help and when they need that expertise, whether that's a single person, a team, a whole organization, that's when you bring in whatever L&D uh, decides to call itself, um, is, is really that human side and really understanding uh, people and how you can really help people feel and be at their best. Absolutely. It's like today, you could say, I'm engaging with learning technologies, or you could say, I'm taking part in an interview. As far as I'm concerned, I'm taking part in an interview. The learning technologies bit is entirely irrelevant. Yeah. But it's made possible something we couldn't have done. Definitely. Absolutely. Absolutely, Clive. Well, look, I, um, uh, I, I want to, just before we leave this time machine, you know, how is retirement? Tell us something that will surprise people about you in retirement as we well, every, everybody, everybody says that they have far less time available when they're retired. But uh, I, I depends, it depends what you're like. I'm, I, I am a fairly goal-orientated person. I like projects and things. I like to see it and, you know, work on something which I can then say, I've done that, here it is. And um, I'm, I'm just doing different types of things. So rather than writing, you know, running a workshop or writing a book or a blog post or whatever it might be, I'm, um, you know, I'm, I'm doing a lot of music making. Uh, I do it with colleagues. I do it on my own. I'm particularly interested in com the, the process of composing music. Uh, of how, where does it come from and how does it, how, how do people get like, musical ideas and how, uh, and how, you know, how does that process work? It's like magic. So I'm interested in exploring that. So I'm going to be setting up a website all around that whole thing. We're going to, I'm, I'm going to sort of immerse myself in that and, and exploring 
all sorts of different musical instruments too, um, and how they work and why they work. Because musical instruments are, you know, for someone in learning technology, <laughs> you know, a musical instrument, I don't mean a synthesizer, you know, but a traditional musical instrument, is about as non, you know, remote virtual as you can possibly get. So a guitar or a violin or a, whatever it might be, or a piano, is a mechanical device which um, is your often one of your greatest friends, if not your greatest friends. So I think that um, there's, there's a lovely um, non-screen aspect of getting involved in music, although a lot of the work is, is, is technological. I'm rambling here, you should chop some of this stuff. <laughs> uh, but, I, but obviously uh, there are lots of things that, I'm not the only stakeholder in this relationship, so there are lots of things that uh, my wife and I and our family will want to do differently and we've sort of got more time traveling more and uh, doing learning new skills of all sorts of types including languages cooking you know artistic skills and things like that so there's lots of things we're going to do but i i think probably for me uh, writing and uh, musical composition are the things i'm going to be most excited about how fascinating, Clive. You're a lucky man. And look, on behalf of the industry, I'm going to take this time to say thank you so much for everything you've done and are still doing for, for the industry because uh, you've been an absolute pleasure uh, to work with. And, and I know that you and I will stay in contact. But thank you so much. I'm going to let you out of the time machine now and uh, go back to your... Um, to, to your world and, and, and get up to whatever you're doing with your compositions and stuff. Clive, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Jane. And I do expect you to keep flying the flag into the future, uh, long beyond 2030. <laughs> Absolutely. You can count on me, Clive. I'm in. I'm in. I'm wedded to it. And uh, uh, for the listeners out there of this, Clive is also going to share um, some uh, in some links as to if you want to delve deeper into some of the things that he said we will share those with you and if you're enjoying what you're listening to please don't forget to subscribe via people who know clive thank you so much it's a pleasure jane